So the first reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 11. Starting at verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. But you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Gracious God, we indeed give you great thanks for new life, uh, for you are the giver of life. And we especially give you, for, uh, give you thanks for spiritual life uh, that is only available because you are such a, a merciful God uh, who, who deals with our uh, uh, rebellion and sin and uncleanliness and our offense that we've caused towards you. And so it is that we can stand before you as forgiven and saved. 
And today, as we look into this wonderful passage at the beginning of the the book of 1 Peter, we give you great thanks that we can bless you, we can praise you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the great mercies that you have poured out on us. Please help us to understand what it means for us to be a Christian that has been saved by your mercy, recipients of your great mercy, and also what that means for us as we live in this world, as those who have been called out to belong to you. We thank you for this great book, and we pray that it would do its work, that you will do your work through your spirit in our hearts and lives, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question I want to start the series off by asking is, what is the normal Christian experience, right? The normal Christian experience. Uh, For the Christians here, what kind of life, right, do you expect to live? Have you ever thought about that question? Like, what's the normal Christian experience? What kind of life do you expect to live? Uh, Perhaps you're thinking that uh, the Christian life should be triumphant and victorious, blessed, right, a deep spiritual satisfaction and joy. Or perhaps some of us are thinking the Christian life is full of suffering and hardship, always pushing back against the world. Or maybe it's both. But it seems weird that it be both, doesn't it? Because it seems contradictory to be victorious and triumphant and blessed, and yet to be in hardship and, and suffering. It's a contradiction. Or maybe you find this a really weird question. Like, what do you mean? What is the normal Christian experience? Like that law, right? If you're Singaporean, right? it's just the way it is. It's just like that. It's not too different Right, to anybody else. Well, we do the same things everyone else does. We, we, go, we eat uh, three, four, five meals a day, depending on what kind of person you are. You, you sleep and you work and you play. I, I mean, besides the, the few extra things that we as Christians might do that others don't, like going to church, uh, praying before meals, and, and holding on to some Christian values that others don't, perhaps there's not that much different about us compared to the world, to non-Christians. Now, what does it mean right, to be a Christian? Now, I reckon that 1 Peter deals exactly with this question. Right? What does it mean to be a Christian? And 1 Peter will, will, will give us a very uh, a big view, right? multifacets. For one, it will speak of the astounding blessedness, yes, the blessedness of being a believer. And yet, it will also talk about the inevitable suffering and hardships that will come, that will go hand in hand with being blessed as a believer. And it'll also clearly address the issue of our connection with the world. Are we just like everyone else, or are we completely different, or something else? So you'll deal with that, right? The blessedness that is astounding, the suffering and hardships that are inevitable, and the connection that we have with the world. Now, 1 Peter will greatly bless us and challenge us with what this means and what it should look like. So that's what we've got to look forward to in this nine weeks in this series. Now, the Apostle Peter uh, wrote um, uh, to the elect exiles, right? So in verse 1, we see who Peter addresses this letter to, right? To the elect exiles, those of the dispersion uh, in Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, right? So it's a letter that's sent to to this group of Christians in this location, which is on a map here, right? It's uh, a modern-day Turkey. I'm sure this... Map may look familiar in the time in, in, in current affairs at the moment. You know that uh, a bit more than a week ago there was a uh, an earthquake, and pretty much the epicenter of the earthquake is where Cappadocia is, 
right, on the map there, okay? So um, this is a real part of the world, right, where, where these Christians lived and where they were called elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, in, in uh, th this phrase, elect exiles, right, it's a very important phrase. Uh, it is Peter's way of describing the Christians that he's writing to. And in every way, this description, elect exiles, is true of all Christians down through eternity, including every single one of us who are believers today, right? Elect exiles, I think, is really a two-word summary of the book of 1 Peter. If you want to summarize what 1 Peter is about, it's about the elect exiles, right? Elect, which means to be chosen by God, and with that comes the, the blessedness, the privilege, the joy of being chosen, of being set apart uh, as holy, which means to, to be set apart, to belong to God, and to receive from God all that is most precious that we ought to have, that God wants to give to us. So that's what elect means, right? And, and exiles is kind of the, the word, the negative word, really, in that phrase. It's to be scattered throughout the nations, to be strangers, foreigners in the world, not truly at home. Because for Christians, our true home is heaven. And so with, with being elect exiles, uh, will come with it trials and testings, right? Trials and testing. Internally, uh, there will be the lure, the constant lure of, uh, to return, right, to our old ways of life when we weren't Christians, the way we used to live, when we used to be unsaved and, 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 and cold and, and, and anti-God, externally, we will face hostility from a world that does not believe in God, doesn't just not believe in God, but often opposes God and opposes the things of God, including the people of God, Christians. So we'll face internal lures and pressures to succumb, as well as external ones. And so 1 Peter reminds Christians... Right, of two things, isn't it? Of, being, of this blessed status that we have in order to reignite our joy in what it means to be a Christian. But 1 Peter also deals with the reality of being a stranger in this world. And so ready us for the hardships that will come because of this. 1 Peter will reassure us that our mixed experience is normal, that the Christian life is one of a conflicted presence uh, in this world. So one, teacher, one, one Peter teaches us how to live well uh, as elect exiles in this world. It urges us to remain faithful as we wait for Jesus to return and for the eternal glory uh, that is to come. And so emotionally, I think one Peter has, has kind of, uh, is a bit, I guess, uh, bipolar, if you want to put it that way. Maybe that's not the right word to use, but, but emotionally, kind of, there's two extremes, isn't it? On one hand, it's a really uplifting book. An uplifting book, especially in this first section that we're looking at this morning, uh, but littered throughout the letter, uplifting us with the truth of God's mercy that has been poured out on us. Uplifting us with reminders of the blessing of being God's chosen and holy people. Uh, we have a hope uh, that is life-giving and eternally glorious, and we have this hope to be able to share with a dying world around us. So it's uplifting. But it's also an uncomfortable book, right? An uncomfortable book. The reality is this, right? We don't belong to this world. Christians will never and should never fully fit into this world. Faithful and holy Christians, that is, true Christians, right, will be strange in the eyes of this world. That's what we call strangers. We'll be strange in the eyes of this world. We'll be sidelined and left out, called out, 
and cancelled, will miss out, will be misunderstood, and will be maligned. This is not the sort of life that most people find attractive. Uh, this is not the sort of life that most people find attractive. And so it is a deeply uncomfortable book as it reminds us of what it means to be elect exiles. And the question will be, all the way through, will, will the joys outweigh the hardships? Right? Will the joys help you and me through the hardships of standing up for Jesus? Right? Will you think of yourself in your core identity as being an elect exile? And that is the way that you will go about living your life in this world. All right, let's get into it. Like uh, Peter's first big thing that he says is in verse 3, right? Uh, have a look at verse 3. Uh, uh, the letter proper starts with these words from Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Blessed be, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so the question then is, why is God worthy of such praise? And the answer, I think, is mercy. Right? That is the big answer to why is God worthy of praise? Mercy. Right? The undeserved kindness of God in choosing and saving sinners like us, like them that he wrote to, right, to belong to him. Now, we're going to deep dive into God's mercy by looking backwards to start with in verse 1 and 2. Uh, and we see that uh, mercy is Trinitarian, right? So, um, remember that the word elect means to be sovereignly and mercifully chosen and saved to belong to God. And who has done this uh, choosing and saving? Well, it's God the Father, uh, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, God the Son, right? The Trinity has been at work to bring this about. So if you look at verse 1, believers are chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Are chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now for us humans, we know stuff, don't we? Uh, by observation, by learning, by already studying what has happened, okay? And then we try to predict uh, what might happen based on what has already happened. That's, that's all we have, right? We are finite. It's a closed system. We learn stuff, and then we try to predict stuff based on what we know. But... For God the Father, who is the creator and the ruler of all things, he doesn't know by having to learn or having to observe what's out there, right? God knows things by determination, by deciding, by personally making it happen. So God's foreknowledge is God's choice, right, to choose people to belong to him. It wasn't left to a random chance. It wasn't that God looked ahead in the future and go, oh, yeah, right? Uh, a Paul is going to choose me, right? So I'm going to choose him. No. All right? if, if, if God left it to us, we would never choose God. That is the consistent testimony of Scripture and the consistent nature of the sinful heart that we would never choose God if it were based on us. And so God mercifully, sovereignly chooses us. Believers are sanctified in the Spirit. That's the next thing we're told there, isn't it? Now, to be sanctified is first and foremost to be made holy, right? To be given a holy status, uh, that is to be set apart to belong to God. That's what sanctified means. It's a once-off thing, right? To be made to belong to God. And from there, then we live out sanctified lives, right? The process of sanctification. Uh, both the once-off belonging to God and the ongoing process is done by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us holy, right? Makes sense? Uh, the giving of God's very own spirit to dwell in us believers is really something that I think many times we take for granted. 
Uh, we, we don't truly marvel and, and, and be in awe of, of the fact that God's very own Spirit dwells in us. Right? We know how sinful we are. Actually, we're probably more sinful than we realize. The uncleanliness, the, the godlessness that does exist in us. And yet God chooses uh, to put His Holy Spirit in us to belong to Him. Now, of course, this has been made possible only because of God the Son. Now, uh, in, in, chapter, uh, in, in verse 2, the second part, in most of our versions, it reads this, right? Uh, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Right? That is, believers are sanctified to live in obedience to Jesus and to live out a cleansed life. Right? That's kind of how you could paraphrase uh, what verse 2b says. Um, but, I mean, and, th- and that's certainly what it means, but the word in this verse, the word for in this verse, could also be translated as because of. Okay, so if you study a bit of Greek, right, that preposition can mean because of. And I think because of makes a bit more sense, right, in this Trinitarian mercy that we're hearing in verse 1 and 2. So if you read it different, this way, is in the sanctification of the Spirit, because of the obedience of Jesus Christ and because of sprinkling with His blood. Right? You see, it was because of Jesus' obedience that brought the eternal Son of God into this world, right? It was, it's because He was obedient to the Father. He came into this world. He, he, he suffered and He was opposed and He was crucified in obedience to the Father. And it's because of His perfect obedience that our sins have been paid for and washed away, that we can be forgiven. And it is His blood that cleanses us from sin, which allows the Holy Spirit to be able to indwell such uh, awfully dirty sinners like us. He's cleansed us by His blood so the Holy Spirit can dwell in us. So it's because of the Son that the Spirit can dwell in us and sanctify us. Anyway, we see that in, the, in, in verse 1 and 2, I mean, we could spend a lot more time expanding this, but we see clearly, don't we, that God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, all at work in our election and salvation. And this is why God is to be praised, right? But there's more, okay, there's more. So we move on right, to the bits after, right? Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, have a look at verse 3 onwards. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. <clears throat> As you read these uh, two, three verses, can you, can you sense that it's, it's kind of... Paul, uh, Peter, wanting to kind of have this cascading flow, right, of glorious truths that he wanting to just kind of get to. It just kind of flows out. There's this beautiful stream, right, of, of glorious truths, uh, wonderful connections of blessings that reveal um, uh, even more greater implications of God's great mercy. And God, God has mercifully given us, as we begin the cascading waterfall, like we, with a new birth. Right? It begins there, right? a new birth to a living hope. Uh, our, dead, um, our old, dead, and dead end lives has been done away with. And a totally new one, one filled with living hope, has been given to us. A new birth is something far more dramatic and transformative than just a fresh start. Right? Sometimes we think you know, becoming a Christian is just to be kind of 
start again, start from fresh. But it's not just a, a makeover. It's not just a deep pressure uh, wash and detailing work done like you would a car. It's not even like an extensive renovation on your house, right, with all the old bits pulled out and new extensions put in and a fresh coat of paint over the whole house in and out. It's to have and to start a completely brand new life. A totally new status, a completely new way of life. Now, the rest of 1 Peter will spell this out more, right? What this new birth ought to look like, how, how different it should be from our old lives. So I won't go into it now, but we can something to look forward to as we continue this series. But we will see that this new birth changes everything. Now, as we return to the flow of God's cascading mercy, we see that this new birth and life is given through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So if you look at verse 3, <coughs> the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, from the dead. The assurance and guarantee that we indeed have a new life uh, and we have a sure hope uh, of everlasting life is the fact that Jesus himself rose from the dead. He has conquered death and has the power to give life. Now, the Christian hope is one of resurrection because of Jesus' own resurrection. And it's a resurrection into eternal glory, right? Uh, where our inheritance awaits. Have a look at verse 4, right? Into an eternal glory where our inheritance awaits. Uh, and we're told this inheritance can never uh, perish, never be spoilt, and never fade. Right? Which is totally the opposite of any treasure that we'll be able to find on earth. Right? Jesus himself uh, talked about this, right? That the, the things of this world, the treasures, no matter how precious they are, uh, they will always perish. They will always spoil and they will always fade. There is only some, one thing. Right, that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And that is the inheritance that awaits us, the eternal glory that is to come. And we're told this inheritance is something that God himself guards. I can you imagine that? God himself is guarding this inheritance so that we will definitely receive it. Now, as we look at other parts of Scripture, we know that the Holy Spirit is how God guards us and, and makes sure that we make it to the end. And this inheritance, what is it exactly? Well, it is it, salvation itself. Right, we see this at the end of verse 5. We all wondered, uh, what reward am I going to get in heaven? <clears throat> and we think we're going to get some huge mansion right, that's better than anything you know, in Ejipili or Hamilton or wherever it is that your dream house is at. Uh, we think it might be you know, a golden crown like a, a, and, and royal robes or a nice car. Well, no, right? The, 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 the greatest reward, the greatest inheritance that awaits us is salvation itself to belong to God and His Son forever. The stream of God's mercy flows finally into the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the very end. So verse 3 to 5 reads like a cascading stream right, of God's mercy being poured out. Uh, and with this, we're, we're invited to kind of wade through it like we would a beautiful stream on a, on a warm summer's day. Right? You may to feel this passage. We're, we're invited to, to marvel at its beauty and be refreshed as we hear about God's mercy and what it means. We're invited to give praise and thanks to the God who pours out such mercy. We're meant to have a, an emotional response to God. <clears throat> now, the, the aesthetic and the, the uh, experiential amongst us, uh, hopefully you'll appreciate this as you think about this passage, not simply as words on a page, but as an experience as a beautiful thing to behold. 
Now, for the analytical people, which is me, I was trying to be like, experiential and anesthetic before. That's kind of Steve's thing. So I tried. Hopefully that worked. But I'm an analytical guy, so I want to point out to you the beauty of analyzing this mercy of God as being something that is poured out past, present, and future. Right? That's how I see this passage. I see it as being uh, a, a time-bound uh, uh, thing that is beautiful. Our salvation, the mercy of God, is seen in the past. Right? If we go through this passage again, we see that we've been chosen by the foreknowledge of God in eternity past. It's accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And if you look down to verse 10 to 12, we see another key component of God's mercy that is in the past. Right? That God's salvation is grounded in the history of God's revelation. God's salvation was revealed to the prophets of old, in the Old Testament. Right? They prophesied about the grace of God that would come, not fully knowing what they were talking about, but we know it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We know what grace looks like because in the past, God had prepared the people to understand the, the grace, the mercy that He would pour out. Now, with the coming of Jesus, Christians now fully know uh, the, prof, the, the grace and mercy that prophets point to and long for, which leads us to the present. So in this passage, we see that right now, believers have a new status. And what are the present truths and realities? Well, we are born again. Right, we are born again. We have a living hope that we can live with when we're being guarded by God. So the fulfillment of that hope is certain. That's right now, right? We have that status, that experience, that guarantee. And so then in the future, what can we look forward to? Well, believers will experience resurrection, the experience of everlasting physical and spiritual life. We will receive an inheritance in heaven, salvation in its fullest and most glorious sense. So that's the way my brain works. Maybe you like the cascading mercy thing, which is beautiful. Or maybe you like the past, present, future thing, which is analytical and so beautiful as well. Whichever way, whether we're wading down the stream and being refreshed, or whether we're marveling and appreciating the impeccable timing, the timeline of God's mercy, let us make sure that it leads us to praise and the worship of our God and Father, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let it result in our praise and rejoicing right, as we let these verses wash over us. Now, for the uh, original readers and for us, right, this call for praise doesn't happen uh, in a vacuum, right? Uh, it's not without any context, removed from the realities of life. Right, this call for praise and rejoicing, which is what Peter is calling for the, 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 the Christians of the dispersion in, modern, in, in, in Turkey back in those days, uh, it happens in the context of trials and testing. They may not be going through an earthquake, right, like Turkey is going through now, but they were going through suffering and hardships of many kinds, especially for being believers. And they were grieved by them, right, we're told, right, but they were grieved by them. Now, the, these, uh, these trials in particular are expanded once again later on in the, in the letter, but in short, this is what it includes, right, the, the inner spiritual battle. Right, that was real, in a spiritual battle of, of fighting against their all sinful way of life. There was the outer battle against a hostile world opposed to God and the gospel. 
And it was the general hardships, basically, of living in a world full of natural and man-made suffering. All these things are considered trials, difficulties, hardships that Christians face. For the original readers, back in Asia Minor, in the first century, as well as just were able to rejoice in their trials because they knew right, the joy of salvation, the joy of being shown such great grace and mercy, the joy of having such certain hope, the joy of knowing the glory that is to come. Right, believers can rejoice in these trials because we know we have something far better and we know of the much better future that is to come. So the things that we know. I mean, these motivations to put up with hardships are, are something that many of us, I'm sure, have experienced in other pursuits of life. The idea of uh, already being given something, or having a present status, something to look forward to. I think we all kind of experience this uh, in our own lives. Uh, for many of us, I'm sure we've been chosen um, to represent maybe your school uh, in sport or to be selected in a, in a band right, to, to play in or to represent your country in a spelling bee? Anyone here? Anyway, that's a thing, right? Um, but even though you have that privileged position, the training is, is hard, and the practice is brutal. Uh, the early morning starts, the hours of practice, the body parts aching. Uh, Stacy's playing the band for the school musical, and she was two hours on the bass, and her hands were like cramping up, you know? It, it hurts, right, to, to practice. Your energies are being poured out. Or you've managed to finally fall pregnant right, after a long period of trying. But the, the morning sickness is a lie. It isn't morning sickness. It's all day, I feel like I'm going to die sickness. But for each of these, there's a privileged status that you've been given, right? I'm sure you know that there's an area of life in which you know you've got this privileged status there's a hope of something far greater right, beyond the present pain and hardships and suffering. And so, there's a real joy, not just to be had at the end when you reach your goal, but I think we can be honest that there is a real joy even in the process of practicing and training and, and suffering and being sick. There is a joy now and the future. The privilege and blessing that we Christians have received is far greater than being a mother or being a sporting, musical, or spelling representative. Right? Far greater, that privilege that we have. And the hope of what we will receive at the end is incomparable to anything that this world has to offer. But you see, trials can also be um, a cause for rejoicing. Sorry, that was the previous headline. This is the new outline, right? Uh, trials can also, are also a cause for rejoicing because it tests our faith and it shows it to be genuine. Right? So this is the second point. Now, there's hardly a student in this room, I think, uh, who likes tests and exams. Right? There are a few high school kids here, there are a few uni students. Most of us have been there, done that, although some of us are still studying uh, into our 40s and 50s for some reason. Um, we might not like taking a test, but it's good for us, isn't it? It's good for us. It shows whether we know our stuff or not. It shows whether we know our stuff or not, right? Some tests, I mean, look, it's horrible, okay? Uh, there are questions that are not from the 10-year series, which you spend all that hours memorizing, right? They decide to actually ask you a question that makes sure that you know your stuff, not just memorize answers. Uh, they actually ask you questions based on the readings that you're supposed to do. Who does that, right? 
Now I remember there was a neuroanatomy exam that I had in first year physio. And there are all these little wedges of brain that were cut out, and there's a pin in there, and they're like, identify. I'm like, so my answer was uh, optical nerve, optical nerve, or I just kind of gave up. Who knew what it was, right? It's just a little wedge of brain. Um, but you know, you do the test, and then you get the dreaded D. Is D a fail? No. Okay, you get an F. Or whatever it is. You get a D, you get an F. Whatever it is, it's bad, right? And you know, I actually don't know my stuff. Uh, and I'm probably not competent in this area of study. I better not work in this area because I might do some damage, especially if I'm a doctor or a physio and I, I don't know what, what the brain does or what the body parts do. I, I better not be that thing. Right? A test shows up, your failings and your inadequacies and where you need to work on. However, if you do get that precious A, that sort of the high distinction or that seven, well, you know where you stand and you're confident that you do know your stuff. And so you, when you do go apply for that job and you do get it, you have confidence right, that you can do it. You see, the testings right, of trials in the Christian life, now it's far more difficult than any uni exam or any CPA or whatever it is. Uh, you know, in uni, you feel like you're under fire, but trials and testings of a believer are actual fires, isn't it? a refining fire, as 1 Peter puts it. It's like gold being purified. Life's trials are there to burn away the impurities, the, the sinfulnesses, the unfaithfulnesses, to be able to show up where there is genuine faith in our lives, to reveal that there is actually substance of genuine faith. Testing of our faith is far more difficult, but it is far more precious. The results are far more precious than any A, high distinction, or seven in life. Because the results are praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Praise and glory and honor. Now, the question is, praise and glory and honor for whom? Do you think to ask that question? Like, praise and glory and honor for whom? Well, hopefully it's obvious to you that praise, glory, and honor goes to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because it is our great Trinitarian God who has poured out His great mercy, their great mercy, graciously brought about our salvation. In Revelation 4 to 5, at the end of the Bible, a picture is given of the universal worship of our great God for the salvation that He has accomplished through the Son. Let's have a look. Let's have a read of it. Right? It's a beautiful passage. Uh, Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You hear that, right? On, on that final day and into eternity, our salvation will be to the praise, glory and honor of God the Father, God the Son and the Spirit as well. Right? That's gloriously true. But you know what? I reckon that praise, honor, and glory will be ours also. Right? Praise, glory, honor will be ours also. If you remember, Jesus taught his disciples to be faithful servants. Oops. To be faithful servants right, of their master. And at the end, they will receive the praise. Doesn't remember that phrase? Uh, good and faithful servant is the praise that servants long to hear from our master, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, in 1 Peter itself, in chapter 5, verse 4, faithful believers are promised that they will receive the unfading crown of glory. I will see the praise from our, our, our Lord. We will see the unfading crown of glory. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, Peter says this, right? Um, Whoever believes will not be put to shame, but the honor is for you who believe. Praise, glory, honor is for us who believe. See, the, re- the result of our genuine faith is the universal and the eternal praise, glory, and honor of our God, Right? but it also results in the praise, glory, and honor of ourselves. And not, not, not to big note ourselves, but to have been given the approval, the acceptance, uh, the glory of God shown to us. I'm not sure if there's anything better than this, is there? There is no result that is better than this. Now, you might think, that achieving in this life, in your studies, in your work, in your sporting achievement, in your music, in whatever it is that we strive for, you might think that those results are great, and, and they probably are really great in this world. But for, for praise, glory, and honor to, to be given to our Creator, our Savior, and to us forever, I think we need to let that soak in as to how much better that there is. That is. Now, with this to look forward to, like the question is, will, will you rejoice as your faith is tested? Right? Will you strive to pass the test? Now, so all the students, all the good students here will have one big question in mind, which is, how do I pass the test? Right? If the test is something we need to pass to get these results, then what is the test and how do I pass it? Well, Peter tells us how his readers had passed the test. Right? They passed the test of faith when... In trials and hardship, in their struggle against internal sin and external pressures, they loved Jesus, verse 8. They believed in Him, though they had not seen Him. They loved and believed with rejoicing that is inexpressible, filled with glory. Right, to them, Peter assured them that they, they would receive the outcome of their faith, their salvation of their souls. In other words, Peter saw that these people were passing the test. Now, true, true faith actually really isn't that hard to define or understand, is it? Now, as many of you know, I like watching uh, Korean dramas. Um, and one of the stranger tropes that Korean dramas love to use for their, their series is this thing called contract marriages. You know what I'm talking about? Right, where, where somehow some woman and some man needs to be in this contractual marriage right, to be able to achieve some kind of goal. They don't actually love each other or want to be married. They just kind of bung it on. Right, for a reason, okay? So anyway, if you, are, if you don't understand why that happens, just come talk to me. I'll explain to you the reasons why uh, they contract uh, marriages are used in Koreans as a trope. But uh, in true K-drama fashion, contract marriage, which is fake marriage, eventually leads to true love, right? And then it becomes real marriage at the end of this, usually by episode 15 or 16, right near the end. <laughs> but it's dead easy, right, to tell during the however many episodes where they are contractually married, that it's not true marriage. And it's really easy to tell when it becomes true marriage and there's true love and trust. Right? In a real marriage, there's love and trust that you just can't fake. Right? It's just real and it's just there. Now, I could spend five, ten minutes telling you about it, but I think you've been able to see enough marriages that are true and real and good, as well as ones that are terrible or fake, 
to be able to know what true marriage looks like. And that is what true faith also looks like, right? There is a genuine love and trust that exists in true faith that doesn't exist when you're just putting it on and calling yourself a Christian or saying that you believe. There is a joy and a happiness that just cannot be manufactured when it's true and genuine, that is simply and naturally and just really there. A love and trust and joy that endures, right? In the good times and the bad, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer. Real faith, in many ways, looks like real marriages. Now, what does love and trust looks like for believers will be spelt out once again right, in the rest of 1 Peter. So keep on coming back to learn and especially to live it out. Now, let's wrap things up. Now, the experience of being exiles and strangers in this world, it can certainly test our faith. Certainly, genuine faith is lived out in the reality of all the internal and the external pressures and hardships that we will all face. And so we must remember that by the great mercy of God, we are the elect, that we are chosen by God. Well, what we must do, no matter what life is like, whether we're, we're really flying high and going well, or whether we're, we're crashing and burning in life, things are really hard we must strive to experience a joy that is inexpressible because of the mercy of God. We must experience that. We must be people who experience it in such a way that praise for God and praise for the mercy of God flows out from our hearts and our lips and our hands. And sometimes that's hard because so many other things distract us and consume us. And so we must rehearse over and over in our heads how great a mercy that God has poured into us through His Son and His Spirit. Whether you wanted to, to think of it as a cascading flow of mercy or, or an analytical time frame of God's past, present, and future mercy, whatever it is, rehearse God's mercy in your lives. Let it refresh and restore you and fill you with joy. We must understand and embrace our identity as elect exiles. Experiencing such a, a strangely paradoxical and, and a conflicted life. On the one hand, a life of incredible blessedness, of living hope and of real joy, yet also one of inevitable suffering and hardships. It, it, it's something that it, we, 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 we've got to know beforehand. This is what real Christian experience is like. Otherwise, we'll be confused and we will fall. Like I said at the start, 1 Peter will be greatly uplifting. And I hope and pray that you have been uplifted by these 12 verses today. But as I also said, it will be quite uncomfortable. And perhaps you can already sense that. Can I urge you all, can I urge us all to keep on coming? For the whole series, it's nine weeks, one Peter. If you are new to church, you've only come today or you've only come along for the last few weeks, maybe make it a, a commitment to come along for, for this week and the next eight and, and work through one Peter together with us. There is so much more to, to explore, explore and press into so much more to learn and so much more to grow in and so much more to rejoice in. And it will be worth it because it will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus returns. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we bless and praise you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for the, the mercy that you have poured out and how you, Father, in your foreknowledge, have chosen us 
to belong to you, how you have sanctified us in and by the Holy Spirit, we who are so dirty, so sinful, so undeserving, yet you have chosen to put your holy presence, your spirit, to dwell in us. And all this has been achieved because of Jesus, because of his obedience, because of his perfect sacrifice, because of his blood that cleanses us from all sin. We give you great thanks for the mercy uh, that you have shown to us. And we pray that this is a mercy that we would know and experience deeply, that it would be like a, a cascading flow of beautiful, refreshing waters that refreshes our hearts, that it would be deeply, intellectually satisfying as we see your mercy being poured out from eternity past uh, in, in, the, in the death and resurrection of your Son, in our current experience of being uh, your children, your chosen holy people, and with the great hope of the future, of the salvation, the glory, the praise and honour that has come to you and to us. We pray that you help us experience and know all these things, and so allow us, enable us to be able to be, um, to have true faith that will last as we experience the difficulties and the hardships, the trials and the testings of this life. We pray that you will help us to have a genuine love and trust in the Lord Jesus. For we pray all in his name.